to use the uh, rather sort of um, $100 word heuristic to describe what this uh, episode 168 of PC's podcast entitled Generation Saal or Generation Saal is about. And the word heuristic is a uh, fancy but actually really good word in which involves the uh, use of a kind of, uh, of one idea or one conceptuality or one approach to certain material as a kind of hoe or uh, garden uh, a, a tool that digs up something else. In other words, the heuristic tool here would be my own um, experience of uh, German things, my own personal experience of Germany, which is uh, really uh, substantial from my own biographical and educational point of view. But I w- wish to use that as a tool of getting to something which is really more universal, uh, larger, and more important because my personal <clears throat> history with a country or a way of thinking or a setup is going to be different from yours. But if we can use something that is of importance to me to dig up something else that is universal, and in this case I believe something very universal, and something which will then find its odd um, summation in a um, non-recorded song, which I have the uh, track to uh, by Burton Cummings, uh, be patient. Um, I hope I can help you, help the listener, find some light when it comes to aspects of life that have been hitherto perhaps veiled. Now, I was so fascinated to read the odd and bizarre account of the divorce, which I gather is happening between the Captain and Tennille, two recording personalities who were married for years, who... um, did uh, the Captain and me, the Captain and Tennille, um, love will keep us together, and uh, they're getting divorced at a very advanced age for whatever reasons, and um, 
it uh, it uh, struck me there that there was something quite universal in which in which she said on her website. Um, she said that sometimes you get to an age when certain past memories or certain past associations or certain past um, resonances are, uh, I think she said, past feelings are uncovered and they become too hot to handle. Past feelings are uncovered and these become determinative. Now, that's a way of saying, as you've heard me say before, that one's archaeology often determines one's teleology and there's no freedom in that. So in a way, you might say this uh, is an attempt to find freedom from hitherto veiled facts. Now, uh, the fact um, is, uh, for me, and you'll have your own, is that I have had to um, kind of – no, let me put it this way. I have actually suppressed – a tremendous aspect of my own um, interest level in the past uh, involving uh, German uh, academe uh, because I came back from Germany, or at least in 2007 when I came to that uh, shattering near-death experience of the sort of seeing things and myself more as I and they are, I sort of uh, immediately dismissed uh, what I'd been doing in Germany for several years and prior to going there. And after leaving Germany as a kind of a, an exercise in um, kind of a merry-go-round of nothingness because it seemed to amount to nothing. Part of it had amounted to nothing because it really did amount to nothing, and there's a real lesson in that. And part of it was I had sort of put all this effort into something that seemed to have uh, amounted to a big red hot uh, zero. Um, now, um, let me say what I mean, then I'm going to say it in German, but far more briefly. And then I'm going to talk about uh, the heuristic tool that hit me between the eyes, uh, a television program actually in two very long parts called Generation War, a 2012 um, a German uh, television series that is magnificent and ha- raises a point of, of great universality far above issues that we think of connected with World War II. Now, uh, what the German part of me was uh, sort of seemed like such a joke because um, I had done so much. I had been so close to it, and then it uh, it, it kind of uh, it seemed to do, do me no good. I mean, except inwardly, of course, it did good, but it did me no good in the sense of having tried to accomplish something, and then it amounted in terms of my next career and my so-called career, as my friend, uh, a friend of mine in New England uh, constantly comments about his own distinguished career, his so-called ridiculous career. I'm speaking for myself, that it seemed meaningless to me. Let me say what it was. I learned the German language for um, uh, intensely in college, uh, just out of sheer interest and the desire to read um, German literature, and especially German theology. And then I um, uh, decided to go to Germany uh, in, um, in uh, 1990 and 91 to... Um, write a PhD dissertation at the University of Tübingen, and in order to do this, I had to learn German fluently in my 40s, which meant going to Germany, spending a time at a Goethe Institute in Bavaria, in a beautiful place, and killing myself to learn the German. And then once I got the German, that was after having been almost bilingue en français, and having had Latin and uh, 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 Greek up the wazoo, and then uh, having to learn this in my 40s, I was dead, and then I went to Germany and had to learn Hebrew. 
Hebrew in order to be relatively fluent, uh, that is to say, in written translation of Old Testament texts, um, a, a high level of fluency by my standards, by German standards, a medium level, my standards, of, <laughs> which were zero at the time, very high level. So through German, durch Deutsch, I had to learn Hebrew and pass a very demanding examination, um, which I ended up taking at Duke University. And then I had to write the book Auf Deutsch. I mean, I could, there were no breaks. At least my professors gave me no breaks on that front. They used to say, well, you've come to a German university, so you have to write it in German, and which I did with um, translation help from professionals, but the work was mine entirely. And uh, only at the end was there to make sure I got it. I did it right. There weren't too many errors because you wouldn't get the degree if there were errors in the actual language, let alone the content. So I wrote this book of Deutsch, which was published um, by a, a really well-known scholarly publishing house in Germany, took a uh, day-and-a-half-long examination in the German language in all these fields and uh, did it. And all while I was there, I was the last uh, overseas doctoral student of Jürgen Moltmann, the magnificent, the famous, the... the um, God of, uh, from Amer American point of view of uh, contemporary German theology or modern German theology. And then took all these courses, Herr Bayer and Herr Jungel and uh, Herr Neif and uh, Herr Hermison and Herr Geza and uh, Herr Stuhlmacher. And then I became Stuhlmacher's uh, assistant, that is to say his research assistant and his teaching assistant in his Romans lecture, which, uh, had, uh, which meant weekly seminars with my students, which were conducted entirely in the German language. And uh, then um, moved on from this, and uh, after the book was published uh, and the degree was granted and the languages were all passed and every dot and tittle uh, of the law was uh, finalized, then continued strongly with Germany, was uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury's official representative to the, to the Kirchentag or Church, Church Congress in Stuttgart. And... Um, he gave a talk at the church conference in Stuttgart in front of all these people about uh, American evangelicalism in relationship to Lutheran theology in German, it being recorded in front of all these German people, and then uh, was asked to come back uh, very touchingly for Hermot One's 80th birthday, where I gave a, a, a the overseas uh, speech again in the German language, which I had basically just learned. Now, why do I say all this? Um, and then one thing led to another, became close friends, literally, with um, Herr Hans King and uh, uh, others, and have continued to uh, that. But then it came to a point where I said, why did I do all this? I mean, the place that I was teaching and became involved as a theological principal, uh, was they, they didn't want to hear it at all. They hated that fact for some reason. They just couldn't stand it, uh, uh, that I had had all this background in life and that I was connected to these people personally. And so that was, you know, I sort of had to keep the door closed when, when my, if my uh, diplomas were hung up. And then after that, you know, I landed in Chevy Chase, which was great, and have spent much time in the wilderness since then. But it's almost as if you say to yourself, well, why in the world did I, did Mary, uh, she was so wonderful. She supported us, and she, she went and did this thing with me for three years, and it involved moving to Switzerland. Oh, and then I got involved in the Swiss Reformed Church in Canton Zurich through friends, and then he introduced me to all sorts of East Germans, and Mary and I became totally up to speed with the uh, 
the East German uh, church and uh, refugees from the East German church who had been such heroes, and we became all connected with them. Oh, and we led tours, very high-priced tours to Germany and Czechoslovakia and had to make all these arrangements, and then our children were all raised with the German language because we spent so much time over there. I mean, give me a break. And then you get to the point where you say to yourself, my gosh, it's total futility. Well, why am I telling you all this? You don't have to be interested in this, but I have to say it because the uh, what the, the long-term meaning of this is that since about 2000 and Oh, almost the people in the Birmingham were wonderful about it. They were just dear about it. And actually, I uh, finished my book in German, uh, typed by my marvelous secretary, Anita Moorhead, in uh, Birmingham. But it, 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 after that, it, when the culture wars came in, it became the doors of the prison house. The windows of the doors of the prison house were closed, to quote Wordsworth. Then it it all seemed to be ashes and diamonds, and why in the world had we ever done it? Or let's just simply say ashes. Isn't there a song, Diamonds and Pearls by Prince? Well, anyway, um, so I sort of just let it go, and uh, I thought to myself, well, that was a strange episode. I mean, yes, I have Herkunft, Deutsche Herkunft. That is to say, I, my grandfather uh, 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 was uh, born in Germany, uh, and my father grew up speaking German in the home until World War One, when it was stopped. There was no German, so there is a, on one side of my family a, a, a German uh, background. And what I always loved about the German scientific method, and I did see this in my dad, was a kind of thoroughness, a kind of focus, a kind of energetic thoroughness, and a willingness uh, to uh, an absolute refusal to take shortcuts when it came to research. I found that extremely interesting, and a tremendous uh, priority placed on. Uh, scientific or wissenschaftliche objectively, objectivity, which I adored and I still do. So all that is to say, what in the, you know, WTF, <laughs> looking at it from the perspective now of where I am sitting as I give this uh, talk, what was it all about, Alfie? Well, it was sort of about nothing um, except what I personally obtained. I mean, the fact that I know these people, the fact that I can speak this language, have written books in it, have uh, um, um, supposedly the world's authority on Ernst Kesemann, at least one of the world's authorities, because I knew the man just before he died, and uh, at his uh, funeral in Tübingen, uh, my Mary's and my flowers were put with our card right on the top of the casket, right there uh, for all to see, and people were sort of amazed. We didn't know that Herzl was so, you know, well, I think the flowers were nice that Mary had arranged to send him, but that's it. What in the WTF, what is this all about? Well, um, despite the personal fructification of it and advantage of it, nothing. So um, with this in mind, uh, but it's still there, isn't it? I mean, don't you have these times in your life that are still there? I mean, they're still there. They, they took place, whether you uh, can't see any reason or, or not. And um, what I uh, was uh, terribly uh, encouraged by was this new, for us, because it was only released a week ago in this country, on DVD, I think 10 days ago, a made-for-television movie, but I think it was released in various places as a feature film, entitled Generation War. The German title was... Um, the German title is Mütter unserer Väter, which is Our Mothers and Our Fathers. And it was a breakthrough in Germany because it was an attempt to film, oh, it's about uh, four and a half hours long in three parts. It's a little like The Winds of War, which is very good, by the way. The Winds of War, directed by Dan Curtis from Herman Woke's novel, is very good. Well, this has a bit of the nobility, believe it or not, of it. Uh, and it's been a little controversial because it, of one aspect relating to the portrayal of Polish partisans, and also there's whole schools of thought that don't like Germans to be portrayed as normal people, or as the people in Germany, for the most part, were just regular people. Yes, they were involved 
involved in an ideological system which caused terrible, terrible uh, evil, and yet they themselves were not different fundamentally than you and I. That's uh, a view that no one has held until recently. And this um, very beautiful, touching story uh, conveys a breakthrough on the part of the um, the uh, screenwriter who, who's quite well known in German, in Stefan Kolditz. He grew up in East Germany, so he's a little less Americanized just because his childhood was in a, in a, in a Soviet-style situation where he wasn't getting the media input. Some good disco, <laughs> but I just saw some Hungarian disco that John Zoll sent me that's actually very good from 1981. But the point is, um, Stefan Kolditz uh, was able to make an enormous creative breakthrough as he pondered what he was going to do to tell the story of people who, uh, like his father, who had fought in the Second World War, uh, as young people and uh, really were reticent about their experiences and uh, a bit for all sorts of reasons. And um, he came up with a very brilliant uh, conceit. And it's not a conceit, it's a fact. He suddenly realized, and this is, uh, this is all part of what I'm talking about when I try to see that I myself and perhaps you yourself can be sort of healed of hidden futilities that have existed in your life, you know, a marriage that was a joke, looking back on it, or uh, child-rearing practices that were really awful, or ideas or interests or career paths that you took at one point that now, looking back on it, inhinsished retrospectively are absurd, and you never should have done it. You have to bring that into the mainstream, though. How do you do it? Well, the the, um, power of... um, uh, Generation War, and I really recommend this. Uh, it's not on Netflix yet, but it will be soon. And any Barnes and Noble is carrying it as I speak. And I've seen the whole thing um, twice. And um, the power of it is, he suddenly realized that his father, when his father was a soldier in the German army in World War II on the Russian front, was only twenty-one or nineteen. And he began to realize that the vast majority of the people who fought the war, including in this case as the backup nurses and the women who were involved in the war effort, they were but the actual people that conducted the war were all young because it always falls to the young to fight in combat. Today it's men and women, then it was men, but young people. And he suddenly realized that if his father was only 19, for crying out loud, when he went into this hell, something that started as one thing and turned out to be a a, a true inferno, a conflagration of the human spirit, a a death of all that is good in favor of so much and almost all that is bad, uh, he he realized that the people that were primarily thrown into this bigger than they were situation were, were very young. And then he said, well, you know, I'm young. You know, I, I'm much closer to 21 than I am to my father's age. I was just recently, in his own mind, and you can answer for this, 20 myself. And imagine if I were 20, with all the illusions and ideas and desires, you know, girls and drinking and having a good time and partying and yucking it up and wasting time and never thinking anything can be over and living completely in the moment, which is typical of young people, whether they're from Israel, Germany, Pakistan, West Orange County, state of Florida, USA. That which makes a young person young is universal, whether he or she is German or Russian. And so uh, that was a kind of hermeneutical key. And what he, the word he used, Kolditz was interviewed, and this is a direct quote. He said, I was looking for a non-ideological accessibility. 
into, into a whole generation of people of whom my father was one, a non-ideological accessibility. Bingo. The light went off when I saw that, when I heard that word. And that's what I want. I mean, I, what, what do you want? I want a non-ideological accessibility. Uh, did I go to Germany? Did I undertake this very demanding course of action and embroil our children and my wonderful wife, all of this to, uh, for the sake of... Um, you know, purely learning about Germany, you know, or getting purely German theological method. Well, in a sense, yes, partly. Teilweise, partly, yes. But actually, it was about a deep inner searching of my own self for a truth, for something like reality and truth. A, 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 an only partially successful, I would say a, a, a near miss. Or, 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 a near miss. Yeah, I think a, a near miss. It wasn't a complete miss, but it was, a, it was, a, a, but it was not a hit. It was a miss. I didn't get what I was looking for, although I thought I had. Some aspects of it were, but and when I think of all the sacrifices that were involved, I, I and to, to writing a PhD in the German language in Germany, because it's a very different system. You're not supported. You, you, you only, when you're a, a doctoral student in Germany, you, you only have one person you're really trying to please, and he only reads, or she only reads the work you've done at the very, very end. So it is a complete cavern, a cave, at which the railroad is going, and there's no light at the end of the tunnel, like all PhDs, but uh, because you're so alone in it, you don't have a group. You don't have a. You have a little bit. Yes. Oh, by the way, I I became a kind of assistant to Herr Moltmann too. He gave me an office, and I, I translated uh, all sorts of things for him. And I I wrote a speech for him once, or at least honed it in the German language. So this was great. But what is the non-ideological accessibility to me? It's not about German things or Protestant things or evangelical things or Christian things or those are all there. But it is really about Paul things. What is he about? And the power of Generation War is that it's about five characters, Victor, a Jewish young man, uh, uh, Charlotte, a young German nurse, um, Greta, who is um, a, uh, an actress wannabe, a very ambitious young singer, whose song, by the way, this uh, podcast began with, Mein kleines Herzst, a very lovely song by the, an actress and singer named Katharina Schüttler. And, um, and then it's about uh, uh, two soldiers who are brothers. One is named Wilhelm Winter, Winter, who tells the tale, and one is called Friedhelm Winter, a younger brother who tells the tale, and it's really about what do nineteen, what do seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and twenty-year-olds do when they're hurled into a situation, which, in a sense, they're part of. But do you, can you blame a seventeen-year-old for an ideological uh, war? Um, of which he feels some sympathy, but quickly has an inner, inward retreat. Can you blame him, really? Uh, well, if you can, you're not very nice. I mean, there's not much mercy in you. So it's how these five young people are able, as young people, to navigate or fail to navigate uh, a historical crisis of the highest magnitude. And that is the power. It's a non-ideological accessibility. So for me, uh, looking back at my own time in Germany, both before and after this sort of veiled and rather failed period in my life, I say to myself, well, good grief, um, what's the non-ideological accessibility to it? Well, it's about Paul. Paul was trying something. I was looking for something. I was searching for something. There are all sorts of ways you could talk about it. Just like you, I, I, I thought I was doing, I was sincerely pursuing a course of action that would answer some deep questions that I had never been successful in answering hitherto. And so I went to Germany, made this huge effort and involved my whole family in it who were so wonderful and so self-sacrificing and so dear and loving. Um, 
to, 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 to answer some questions. And that's really what it's about. It's a non, it, this is non-ideological. And that's really great. Well, I conclude uh, with a kind of strange um, uh, lurch, but it's a very easy one. Um, I was thinking about an old relationship uh, that was very powerful in my experience, which I've referred to at one point in the, uh, in the PZ's Panopticon in, near the end. And, um, you know, you can, you can talk about political correctness or you can talk about, will it fit? Oh, I know what it was. I was reading a book that's come out that's very popular about a man who tries to explain the uh, Woodstock generation in terms of Vietnam and anxiety about the Vietnam War and being drafted. And it's a very superficial uh, book. I've not read the book. I have to say that, but I've read reviews of it. And my friend Bob Whitcomb has reviewed it. And yes, we were all afraid of being drafted and no one wanted to be drafted and all that was in the air tonight but that wasn't the core that's not the that's that's the ideological accessibility to what happened in my generation in the 1960s the far more uh, true and realistic and accurate assessment looking upon it now is simply how did young um, sort of as Bob Whitcomb says uh, middle and upper middle class uh, late adolescents deal with uh, with being in college <laughs> how did we deal with being in these fancy colleges but nonetheless in a time of huge the sexual revolution was the biggest part of it all. That was by far the biggest thing, because girls, I mean, what did we really think about? And John Finley said it, you know, the, the men of Elliott House are, are here, and my job as the master of Elliott House, Harvard, is to get them, instead of thinking about girls 90% of the time, to get them to thinking about girls 60% of the time. Ha, ha, ha. Well, you can say anything you want about that, but there's a truth to it. There's a truth to it. And uh, the things that we were interested in was not the Vietnam War, although that was happening and there were campus riots. But the far deeper underneath it, it was all about uh, our relationships and our friends. It was all about our friends, in my case, mostly final club friends or in Chapel Hill fraternity friends uh, or uh, Moorhead Scholar, whatever you want, to, but friends, old school friends and girls. And uh, that was way big. And music. Oh, absolutely. Led Zeppelin. Um, the Beatles earlier, obviously, and Martha, my dear, you have been da 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 da. da. Uh, but uh, we're now getting into the era of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and James Taylor and the Led Zeppelin. Music, girls, friends, and that's the non-ideological accessibility that gets it. And recently, uh, all those years afterwards, a song uh, by Burton Cummings, which was actually written by Scott McKenzie, who wrote, Are You Going to San Francisco? Will You Go With Me to San Francisco? His second follow-up hit, which was a thud, a disaster, called, but a beautiful song called Old Time Movie. I was listening to this song that was recorded in 1967, and suddenly, bang, it illuminated everything about it. Not everything, but a lot about a relationship that I'd had that had uh, obsessed me for a long time, certainly then and to some extent since, but buried uh, material. And uh, this little song, but it's a very, the lyrics are fantastic about a guy who's um, sort of uh, in the last uh, uh, moments of a long-term breakup with someone he's loved. And uh, the song, while it's Burton Cummings in rehearsal, it's not even Burton Cummings performing it. Behind him, you can hear Randy Bachman on the guitar and I think Peterson or whatever his name is playing on the playing the drums. Um, 
but it is Bachman, and uh, but it's really just this beautiful, simple song, and it was non-ideological. It's simply about a breakup, and it connected with me and something else so powerfully that I was sort of ready to hear a non-ideological accessibility into Germans in World War II, which proceeded to be a non-ideological access into my own failed but extremely, at one point, extremely active uh, life in the world of uh, of, a, of a German thought world and a, a German context, which I really should treasure because it was a great gift. It is not translated into much uh, in terms of so-called impact or legacy, but hey, does anything? Uh, thank you very much for listening, and here's Burton Cummings' old-time movie. time I see you, it's just because you're blue. You never really need me the same way I need you. Don't come on so groovy. You do much better acting. Shadows. <laughs> <laughs>